Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard and I'm in Payson, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church. If you live in Utah, if you're anywhere near us, we'd love to meet you. We'd love to visit with you. If uh, you'd ever want to talk, just reach out. I'm available. We are going through the Old Testament following the Come Follow Me curriculum from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we are going through the Old Testament very, very quickly. Today, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. The entire books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Oh my. Oh my. And next week, we'll be looking at the book of Esther before getting into Job and the Psalms for all of August. All right? Well, um, let's talk about Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, before that, actually. Let's let's consider something that's a benefit of going through the Bible so fast, because even though that is not my preferred method, I uh, don't ever really go through the Bible this fast. <laughs> this is the only time I'm going through this quickly. Um, there is a benefit to it. There are a lot of people who will read through the Bible in a year, or uh, in fact, I have a uh, an NIV Bible that's formatted in such a way that if you read, I think it's 12 pages a day, you can get through the entire Bible in 90 days. Three months, you can read the whole Bible. That's pretty intense reading, but it's doable. It's definitely doable when you consider all the things that we spend time doing in our lives. Um, it's really not that much to go through the Bible in just three months if you wanted to. Well, I, I very rarely, like I said, I very rarely do that. But there is an advantage, and the advantage is this. You actually get to see some themes in the Bible clearer this way than if you were always down in the weeds looking at all the the bugs and rocks that are down there in the weeds and examining every detail. When you examine all the details, you get to see some amazing stuff. You, you can never exhaust. No, nope. Something just made a beep in my office, but everything's okay. <laughs> what I was saying is you can never exhaust all the details that are found in Scripture. That's an amazing, amazing aspect of... Uh, scripture's nature is that you just can't plumb the depths of it. But what happens sometimes when you are examining all those details is you miss the the bigger picture and some of the general themes that just come up over and over and over again. And what we've been seeing, I hope, I, at least I've been seeing as we've been going through the Old Testament so quickly here this year, is that in the Bible we see a few major themes. And I'll, I'll just list off three. We've seen over and over again so far in the Old Testament that there is a difference between God as creator and the rest of us as creatures. The creator is distinctly different than all of his creatures. We also see that God uses messed up people. <laughs> I mean, that that's another one that's just abundantly clear, right? That God doesn't use perfect people. God doesn't wait for people to clean up their act before they're used by him. He uses messed up people just as they are, okay? And thirdly, God wants us to pay attention to his word. We see it over and over again in every generation. People are being pointed to his revelation, and they're being told, take heed, hear, read, listen. We're going to see all of those things uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah as we do a sweeping overview of these books today. I don't even know what I really want the main theme to be today. Usually I have a good idea about here's going to be the, the main takeaway or whatever, but not today. 
So we're just going to jump right in. I have some passages picked out, and we're going to look at these passages and talk about what's going on. Uh, general context. We, we have really sped up. We were um, back in the times of Elijah and Elisha, and uh, we were looking through stuff with King Hezekiah last week. Yeah, that's right, King Hezekiah. Well, now we are um, returning from the Babylonian captivity. So we are in the 400s B.C., and when we get to uh, Esther, that will still be around this same time. And then when we go get to Job and the Psalms and then into uh, the prophets, we're going to be going back in time, all right? So it's kind of hard uh, to keep a, a clean timeline in your head, I'm sure, because we're going through the Bible in Bible book order, not chronologically. And at this point in Bible book order, we're actually jumping uh, pretty pretty far forward in history, close to the time of, um, uh, you know, the 400s, like I said. So uh, what's going on? They are returning from Babylonian captivity, these Israelites. They were uh, overtaken. Judah was overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem was ransacked. The temple was destroyed. However, at this time now, they are allowed to go back to Jerusalem. The king that's in charge now has allowed them to return and to rebuild the temple, and to rebuild the wall around the city. And that's the main focus of Ezra and Nehemiah, is that they are two men who are leaders in Israel at this time, though it's a really weakened nation. They've been through a lot, and they've lost everything. And Ezra and Nehemiah are used by God to step up and to give the people some direction. All right, so um, we're going to jump into Nehemiah 4 here. And in Nehemiah 4, we are going to see Nehemiah's leadership in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now they're going back to their land. This is the land that God gave them. Back in Genesis 12, God gave uh, Abram a promise and said, your descendants are going to get some land. Uh, You can read about that in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17 of Genesis This land belongs to Israel, and it's a forever promise. This land will always belong to Israel as an unconditional promise, uh, a gift from God. So now they're going back, and they're saying, okay, here we go. This is our land, and Jerusalem's our city, and we need to rebuild this wall. So Nehemiah 4, starting in uh, verse 11, as they're rebuilding the wall, it says, Our enemies said... They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. (gasps) Okay, let's just stop right there. (laughs) They were going back to rebuild the wall. They were going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but they still had enemies. So even though they were allowed to go back, there were Sumerians and Persians and other people who didn't want them doing what they were doing. And so they still had enemies who wanted to stop their work. All right, let's keep going. Verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, quote, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So you can get a little glimpse here of why Nehemiah was such an effective leader. 
He was proactive when he heard about the threats and he stationed people in certain places, but he also instilled in the people a godly motivation to keep doing what they needed to do to rebuild this area for the sake of the Lord. Remember the Lord. He is awesome. He is mighty. And he also pointed them to the future, saying, think about the next generation and build for them. Build, uh, work hard and build this wall for the sake of your family and those who are coming after you. Uh, So there's a lot of leadership lessons in Nehemiah, and that's just one of the many. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens or carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. All right, so uh, we see an amazing picture, a word picture that's offered to us of the men who were building the wall had the load in one hand as they were you know, putting the wall together. So they had a trowel in one hand, you could say. And in the other hand, they had a weapon to fight off the enemy, a sword or whatever other weapons they had. And so doing the work with one hand, fighting off the enemy with the other, I don't think you need much explanation as to why that is a great picture, spiritual picture of uh, our lives. We are working and building with one hand and fighting off the enemy with the other. Uh, Not literally. We know that our enemy is not flesh and blood, the New Testament tells us, but we are in constant spiritual warfare. We are constantly seeking to work for the Lord, to build for the Lord, to also fight off our enemy, the Lord's enemy. So um, what, what a cool picture. Well, as they are going through this whole process and they have enemies rise up against them, those enemies were not successful. And eventually, Israel was successful in building the wall. And once they built the wall, it wasn't like, all right, let's, uh, let's have some cake and uh, let's all just move on to the next thing. This was a very holy and reverent moment in Israel, uh, their, their history. This was a very serious thing. They took it all very seriously. And so after the wall was built, it was a point that uh, the leader made, the leaders made, Nehemiah and Ezra, that the law be read to Israel. Okay, we're back in our land. We got this wall built. We're, we're making progress. We're building things back. You could say they were building back better. <laughs> they, they were actually building back better instead of what um, whatever America is doing right now. And... Um, they said, okay, well, as, we've, as we've done that, we need to do this right all the way, and we need to hear what God has said. We need to look to his law. And so I want to show you um, Nehemiah 8 and Ezra 7. Well, let's just do Ezra 7.10 here. Um, let me pull that up. This is from the book of Ezra, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra 
um, was just prepared as a man ready to teach the law of the Lord to people in Israel. He was ready for that this moment. But how was he ready? Look at this verse again, Ezra seven ten. He had said it. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That's step one. So for himself to look to the law and to study it, to know what it says, to memorize it, to to just understand what God has said. The second thing he did after studying was to practice it, it says, which is, of course, very important. We don't want any hypocrites as teachers, do we? If someone's going to be teaching us something, we expect them to practice what they teach, practice what they preach. Ezra had set it in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and then, thirdly, to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. There was a particular order to that. And then we see this teaching going on in Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read it, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Okay, and it goes on to say that he stood at the wooden podium. It's like a pulpit, right? He must have been a Baptist, Ezra was. <laughs> That's a joke. He stood at a wooden podium, and they made for that purpose of him teaching the law. And uh, if you look at verse 5, Nehemiah 8, 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. This really sounds like a Baptist meeting, doesn't it? While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So proper translation was made so that everyone could understand. It, was, uh, it seems very clear here that their goal was understanding. As they got this wall put together, and they got the people all together as one people. Everyone's there, men, women, children who could understand. And what is their goal? Their goal is to read from God's Torah, the law in such a way that everyone can hear and understand. And that is, of course, so that way they could do, right? If you go back to what Ezra did, he studied the law, and then he practiced it, and then he taught others. Well, here he's teaching the law to people so that they can understand, so that they can do and practice. And then after that, they can teach others. This is the way God has set it up. We are to look to Him as the Creator of all things. We are just creatures, and He is the Creator. That's that first big theme that we see in the Bible as we think about broad strokes, right? He is Creator, and we are not. Okay, We are to recognize that He uses messed up people like us. That's that second theme. And then thirdly, we are to pay attention to His Word and then teach other people so that they can teach others also. All right, so maybe I'll call this lesson the three themes because I, I think you just you see this so clearly in uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, and maybe you're thinking, you know what? I see the the first theme, 
Yeah, God is God. He's the one who's fighting for Israel. He's the one protecting them from their enemies. They couldn't protect themselves if they were left to themselves. This is God's power. And I see the last theme, where to pay attention to God's word, but were these really messed up people? They sound like great people. Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's finish with uh, Nehemiah 13. This is the very last passage of Nehemiah. These are the last verses of this book. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. All right, let's stop right there. That was Nehemiah 13.23. Israel was not to intermarry. Israelites were not to go out and find spouses from other nations with their foreign gods, their idolatry, and join with them in marriage. And God's purpose for this is because, um, you know, husbands and wives are to be unified in their marriages. They are to be on the same page religiously. Uh, that's God's desire is that they, there would be unity in marriage in all things, and that, of course, includes worship. But then also it says in Malachi that God's desire is for godly offspring. What happens when a man and woman come together and they're worshiping different gods? What happens to their children? Well, it's, it's a lot harder for those children to come to know the one true God, isn't it? It's much more difficult. This is what God has said for, I don't know, ever since he created man and woman. This is how God has set it up, is that man and woman would come together and have godly offspring as they are on the same page in worship. Their children would join them on that same page in worshiping the one true God. So whenever it says here in Nehemiah 13, 23, that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, that's not just like some random fact. This is like an, an accusation. This is a, a mark of condemnation. This is a sad thing. It's, it's rebellion. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 24, as for their children, half spoke the language in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. See what I mean about the kids? They're not able to speak the language of the countrymen even. But the language of his own people was what they were able to speak. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's pump the brakes there. Look at 25 again. Nehemiah contended with them. Okay. Cursed them, struck them, pulled out their hair. Oh, my. Not sounding so Baptist anymore, are we? Well, depending on <laughs> what kind of Baptist church you come from, maybe that does sound familiar. I don't know. He also made them swear by God that they, they wouldn't keep intermarrying. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So are you starting to see these are messed up people? And God uses messed up people? All right. Verse 26. Nehemiah continues. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joyada, I don't know how to say that name, the son of Elishib, Eliashib, 
the high priest. He was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that's how the book ends. Is Nehemiah struggling with people, and, and people are being sinful and rebellious, and there it is. And this is quite interesting, because there are so many prophecies that talk about Israel coming back to the land after being scattered. And this is one of those times where they were scattered, they were taken away into captivity, as the Bible said they would, they would be. Uh, they were carried away, and they were brought back. And yet, they weren't brought back in a way that totally restored them. They weren't brought back in a way that restored the nation. God gives us prophecies concerning the time when they will be brought back to this land, and he says that when Israel comes back, they will be a pure people, that the law will be written on their hearts, that they will uh, live righteously, and they will instruct one another in joy and peace. The cities will all be rebuilt and be very abundant. There will be agricultural blessings unlike any other time, really in world history. There will be a uh, just this beautiful restoration and redemption of not only the people, but the land itself. And what we see here is a glimpse of that, but it's clearly not all of that. There is still sin in the land, there's still struggle, there's still strife, there's hardship. Yet there's coming a day when those prophecies that God gave us about that nation of Israel and that land, they will come to fruition. And so this isn't it. But it's kind of like a foreshadowing of that time. In the end, when the Lord returns, when Jesus uh, comes back to earth at his second coming, there will be a restoration of Israel, and those prophecies will be literally fulfilled when they will be utterly restored in their land. But uh, until then, we, uh, we just see that God continues to use broken people, doesn't he? People who are, are pretty messed up, who are pretty rebellious, who commit evil acts, and who mess up their own families. That's still going on, but God uses people. And he was using some some messed up Israelites at that time, and now in the church, in the New Testament era, God uses messed up people in the church too, doesn't he? Now that's no excuse for sin. That's not saying, hey, let's just go, let's just go be sinful and rebellious, because God's going to use us anyway. That is not the message here at all. It's just reality that you're going to mess up. You're going to fail. As you strive for righteousness, you will fail. And God's going to God's going to use you if you are joined to him because of your faith in Jesus Christ, the biblical Christ and the biblical gospel. God will continue to use you even though you fail. And that's a great encouragement, isn't it? Okay, well, hopefully that gives you something to think about. It's really tough whenever it's like, well, Ezra and Nehemiah this week. Okay, well, there's like a million things to say. I, but this is, this is good for me because, like I said, I just don't typically go high level, and this makes me go high level, and, and that's good. That makes me, hopefully, a better teacher. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for taking uh, time to be with me. And uh, yeah, reach out. If you have any thoughts or questions, any ways that I could be more helpful, reach out. Would love to hear from you. Thanks. God bless.